Welcome to my podcast. I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, books written about him. But mostly, these are my own ideas, distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. Before settling in, I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen. I hope you've been enjoying these episodes and will consider making a small contribution to assist me financially as I devote many hours of my time to writing, recording, and editing with minimal commercial advertising or interruptions. You can find a link to contribute at anchor.fm forward slash Arnold hyphen Sabatelli, spelled S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I. Then just click on the support tab and follow the instructions. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Today's music is a classical guitar piece by the Cuban composer Leo Brower called Un Dia de Noviembre, and I'm actually the performer, so I apologize for the not really professional level, but I, I hope it works. With the short story Soldier's Home, Hemingway gives us a provocative and chilling look at post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD, what was then referred to as being shell-shocked. And I would argue it's one of the most nuanced explorations of this condition ever portrayed in literature. The young man Krebs, who's returned late from World War I to an unnamed town in Oklahoma, is utterly overwhelmed psychologically, paralyzed into inaction he finds himself well beyond the scope of reason and rationality to be of any assistance. Unlike the woman who screams out in the immediate pain of childbirth in Indian camp, Krebs's pain runs psychically deep, though outwardly he appears healthy and normal. Soldier's Home provides a story we can learn a lot from to this day about the stigma of mental illnesses and how both those suffering from mental illness and their loved ones all too often lack the mechanisms and facilities to contend with them adequately on their own. Even as it provides a deeply perceptive look at PTSD, certainly gleaned from Hemingway's own experiences in World War I, it also extends and deepens a range of themes at play in the collection. But take some time now to read or reread Ernest Hemingway's short story, again from In Our Time, A Soldier's Home. As so often happens in Hemingway's fiction, the story begins with subtle, deeply charged imagery that at first seems objective and insignificant, but steadily reveals a distinct point of view and deep emotional urgency. 
the to-be verb in the opening lines while at first seeming to distance us from the narrative, given that the voice is passive, that the to-be verb is generally quieter than active verbs, it's objective and non-committal. Here it manages to contribute significantly to the veiled emotions which will come to a head soon in the story. The phrase, quote, there is a picture which shows him, repeats twice in the opening paragraphs, the word show appearing a third time in, quote, the rind does not show in the picture. Each exactly repeating phrase, however, there is a picture which shows him, is directed at starkly different photographs. The first is of Krebs with his fraternity brothers before he went to war, quote, all of them wearing exactly the same height and style collar, this detail echoing his focus later in the story on the different hair and clothing styles of girls he watches after returning from the war. The second photograph is of Krebs with, quote, two German girls and another corporal, and the detail that he and the corporal, quote, look too big for their uniforms. The story here settling firmly into a distinct opinion, Krebs's perspective. He then notes that the girls, quote, are not pretty, and that the Rhine does not show. Krebs is looking at, or has clearly looked very carefully at these pictures in the exact repetition of, quote, there is a picture which shows him to introduce each photograph speaks volumes to his state of mind. The images both occupy an important place in his consciousness, if not a specific place on a shelf or table at his home. Furthermore, these phrases begin and end a short chiasmus, the word return and returned appearing between the repeating phrase and that central pivoting place of the poetic form. As with so many instances in Hemingway, the chiasmus form appears at a moment when a character is struggling to understand something only artistic gestures may allow them to comprehend more fully. A second chiasmus appears in the next two sentences with Rhine, German girls, German girls, Rhine. Clearly these two images are communicating something central to the emotion he struggles with. An image of him before the war wearing a neat collar looking just like his peers juxtaposed with an image of him during the war looking like a peer again but wearing an ill-fitting uniform here and pictured with German girls who are not pretty and then noting what does not appear in the image, the Rhine River, which no one but him would know was there. It's just out of the frame. At the start of the story, these two pictures, side by side in Krebs's consciousness, show us two very different selves. The old self, neatly dressed, looking just like his fraternity brothers, set next to his war self, where he has become a part of a very different fraternity, one of fighting soldiers, who also dressed alike, though those uniforms fit poorly. They didn't really belong in them at all as if the war had taken something from his old self, those exact matching collars, that fraternity of men, and warped it into something new, something uncomfortable and unfitting. And in the new war image, the Rhine doesn't show. It's out of the frame, only known to Krebs, which surely speaks to all the unknown, unexperienced things and forces at play in him that are out of the frame, that his mother and people in his community can't see or know, which all play mightily on Krebs's psyche. Note, too, the, quote, not pretty girls, who will be mentioned again when he notes later in the story of the German and French girls who didn't talk to you but were your friends, whom you could be with in an uncomplicated way. 
my guess is there are prostitutes, and like so many other things from the war, seeing women, sexuality, romance only in this way, shows he's been reprogrammed, making any more complex or authentic romantic relationships feel too, quote, complicated. Something we'll hear a lot about soon as he struggles mightily with his desire to be with a girl. The opening imagery of the story serves, as is so often the case with Hemingway, as a kind of metaphorical map for the rest of the story to come. The third short paragraph of the story contains a third short chiasmus, though the middle elements are not exactly the same words, but they point toward the same thing. We find Krebs, welcomed elaborately, a great deal of hysteria, the elaborate welcoming, and then Krebs, and this dynamic of coming back after the time of being a hero surely contributes to Krebs's onslaught of PTSD as well. Like many of Vietnam War vet, his return was thankless and even, quote, ridiculous, a rare adjective appearing here. From these three short opening paragraphs, the story now unspools. Noticeably and uncharacteristically, it takes a long time for any grounded, immediate action to occur in the story, the line, quote, one morning after he'd been home about a month, his mother came into his bedroom and sat on the bed, comes almost at the exact middle of the story, three and a half pages or so into it. Everything up to here are generalizations about what he would do from time to time and tortuous abstract explications of how he feels about girls, about lying, about being home. This structural approach, unique to this collection, lets the reader first experience Krebs's strange way of looking at things, lets us get lost in the complexities and odd rationalizations, and that deep struggle to find adequate words to say with clarity what he is experiencing emotionally. We are tossed right into the midst of Krebs's mental illness, and we get lost along with him in his often baffling explanations of what he is feeling. Central to his attempt to state his overwhelmingly complex emotions is the advent of needing to lie in order to verbally address what he's experienced. The fourth paragraph begins on relatively steady footing, just listing the battles he had seen, each one horrific in its own way. But notice the structure of that opening sentence and how it ends. The list of battles begins after a comma and the words, who had been at, marking it as a parenthetical or subordinate phrase, but after the last battle, Argonne, there's no comma. The sentence just continues the opening phrase, at first Krebs did not want to talk about it at all. This abrupt rush into did not want to talk about it at all, the simple absence of a comma here where one should be, makes the next sentence all the more urgent, quote, later he felt the need to talk, but no one wanted to hear about it. To top it off, He's convinced that, quote, his own town had heard too many atrocity stories to be thrilled by actualities, and he found that to be listened to at all, he had to lie. And with these lies, Krebs becomes acutely aware that something more penetrating and devastating is occurring psychically, something that lies at the heart of whatever emotion it is that keeps things from, quote, getting good again.
After just two lies, we find that, quote, he too had a reaction against the war and against talking about it, a distaste for everything that had happened to him in the war set in because of the lies he had told. So far, we were able to follow this for the most part. No one wants to hear the actualities, the things he really experienced. And in a later scene, while talking to another former soldier, he gives us one chilling actuality, that he was, quote, sickeningly frightened all the time. This is the kind of thing a therapist would need to hear about, and I find it particularly interesting that Hemingway seems to be championing talk therapy here, many decades before it became a common part of holistic treatment for PTSD. But even before we move on to the next sentence and the next three or so pages where we witness the horrific psychic anguish he's enduring, there's more to consider. The onset of Krebs's sickness is grounded in the community's inability to want to hear about actualities. They yearn to hear about atrocities for the sensational the stories of war that, like an adventure novel, or what today would be seen maybe in a big-budget Hollywood film, car chases, sex scenes, double crossings. His illness, to some degree, hinges on the societal desire for the expectation of the concrete examples of gore, mayhem, inhumanity. These lies are easy to tell. He says, quote, it's just a matter of attributing to himself things other men had seen, done, or heard, but this replacement of the genuine need to talk about actualities with lying about atrocities, because that's what people want to hear, invites us to think about a bigger problem at play, and one which perhaps had a lot to do with marching off to war in the first place, and that's the general inauthenticity of society at large, something deeply invalid and flawed about normative, quote, peaceful civilian society. I will come back to that later because the next sentence of the story is quite remarkable and baffling, even as it reveals the paradoxical nature of Krebs's emotional paralysis. It reads, All of the times that had been able to make him feel cool and clear inside himself when he thought of them, the times so long back when he had done the one thing, comma, the only thing for a man to do, comma, easily and naturally, comma, when he might have done something else, comma, now lost their cool, valuable quality, and then were lost themselves. What a strange, baffling proclamation filled with deep abstraction, multiple commas, a semicolon, starts, stops, pauses, and subtlety, and ultimately the specific thing he's talking about remains veiled, only fully, clearly known to him. His distaste for the war that grows out of his community requiring him to lie is the only way to talk about the war, the only thing they want to listen to, brings this all on. So he is likely considering things he had done in the war, quote, all of the times, and whatever these things were made him feel, quote, cool and clear inside himself, something to stave off the sickening fear he always felt, perhaps. But then the, quote, time so long back suggests for me that the times he's thinking of could have occurred before the war. And during the war, perhaps he could count on recalling these things to alleviate his suffering. The closest we get to any specific indication of what these times entail is, quote, the only thing for a man to do easily and naturally when he might have done something else. 
it all feels to me like a kind of riddle. And even if we can't decipher it fully or with absolute certainty, perhaps the more important thing to note here is that Krebs himself can't bring himself to say or fully think it with the specific words. Could it be something embarrassing, something deemed inappropriate by the same community that now craves atrocity stories? For me, it could well speak to two things all at once, memories of things that happened before the war that he used for comfort that have now lost their comforting quality because he understands the inauthenticity of the community he inhabited after the experience of war, who now crave only to hear about atrocities, or a memory, say, of killing an enemy, something that happened so long back relative to where he is now, home late from the war and having lived in Europe after the war, memories of something he was expected to do as a soldier, but which now are merely the kinds of atrocities the town yearns to hear about. In either event, given the dynamics of needing to lie to the members of his community to talk about the war at all, these times, whatever they are, lose both their cool, valuable quality, and then they are lost themselves. And here we really start to see the intricacies of Krebs's emotional turmoil. Something he used to use for comfort is no longer comforting, but more than that, these things are lost themselves. They have frayed into more than just being ineffective as comforting devices into something far more dire. The metaphor of lost themselves, words that reach toward the heart of Krebs's emotional wounding. Before moving on, I'd like to take a few moments to address how Ken Burns used this story in his recent documentary on Hemingway. Burns spent a considerable amount of time charting the lies that Hemingway told when he returned from the war and quoted briefly from this story as a way of providing supporting evidence that Hemingway was in fact a liar. Given the nuance of how lying sits at the center of a character's struggles with PTSD in the story and how artfully Hemingway is using lying in the story, I find it particularly upsetting that Burns only used the story as a kind of gotcha to prove that Hemingway was ultimately a braggart and a liar. Far more interesting would have been to consider the story as Hemingway's complex exploration of why soldiers suffering from PTSD might be inclined to lie and how that very act fuels and magnifies their condition Maybe speaking with a psychologist who specializes in PTSD would have been more fruitful than only speaking with one biographer. Again and again in Burns' documentary, and again and again in Hemingway's scholarship and in things professors and teachers commonly say about him, rather than look carefully and closely at how his art works to give voice to the complexities and contradictions of his character, assumptions about his character and his life are used to look at his art. I think this is an upside-down way of thinking about Hemingway's life. But I'll stop there for now and return to trying to unravel this story. After that confounding sentence, which more than anything shows how deeply Krebs's thinking goes, how the deep diving into his emotions is itself an integral part of the illness, we seem at first to be on steadier ground in the following paragraph. 
but as with the previous paragraph, the short paragraph ends with a long, jumbled, confusing tangle of words that ultimately only Krebs may fully understand. Quote, his acquaintances, he's talking about the men at the pool room, who don't find his lies sensational, who had heard detailed accounts of German women found chained to machine guns in the Argonne forest and who could not comprehend or were barred by their patriotism from interest in, comma, any German machine gunners who were not chained, comma, were not thrilled by his story. If a student submitted a sentence like that to me, I would likely point to the strange location of the commas, especially the one after, in, and before, any German machine gunners. If you were to just take it out, the sentence would feel more normative grammatically, though it would still lack clarity. I would also point to the three uses of the word not in the sentence and how hard that is on the reader, these double, triple negatives. They could not comprehend. They had no interest in German machine gunners, not chained, and then were, quote, not thrilled by Krebs's story. The women chained to machine guns suggest they were raped, perhaps by U.S. soldiers? Maybe their patriotism barred them from believing or being thrilled by this atrocity. But then their interest in shifts mid-sentence to have only interest in machine gunners themselves being chained to the guns. Do they hope for some kind of radical revision of the truth? In any event, Krebs is agonizing over the emotional burden of lying, compounded by the way in which his lies are received, his community both demanding lies from him, stories grounded in atrocities, but not going so far as to want something too unseemly or unpatriotic. And out of all of this, we find that Krebs, quote, acquired the nausea. Here he coins a kind of medical diagnosis of his own, on himself, working to give it a name, something he can more easily manage, perhaps, and take hold of. This, however, is instantly complicated further still when he meets someone who, quote, really had been a soldier and falls into the easy pose of the old soldier among soldiers and gives us that powerful line, the thing he would really like to talk about, the thing he needs to talk about, that he had, quote, been badly, sickeningly frightened all the time. But no comfort comes from this. It's a momentary return to something more truthful, more authentic, that only serves to make him realize that, quote, in this way, he lost everything. Here he returns to that first long, baffling sentence where he lost the sensations, the comfort of some unspoken thing, and then lost the thing itself. To another level altogether, he lost everything. As powerful as this is on its own, when we stay just within the confines of this story, it surely brings us back to Nick lying face down on the point after Marjorie has left in the boat feeling as if, quote, everything had gone to hell inside of him. It also brings to mind Ad Francis, lost in the swamp of northern Michigan, awash in his own psychosis. In this opening string of paragraphs, Krebs pushes progressively deeper into his emotional agony, landing finally on this kind of conclusion. On the surface, it feels like a logical syllogism, but given the lack of specificity of the terms, the garbled presentation of the ideas, the syllogistic form is only a guise. Losing, lying, are clearly richly metaphorical for Krebs. 
Unlike Nick looking at the jumping bass, the ring of water appearing in Indian camp, or the woman in Cat in the Rain noting the cat trying to keep dry under the table, Krebs tries his best to use logic only, to use his animus-based reasoning, something he surely would have needed to use a lot to survive the sickening fear brought on by the war, but his seemingly logical arguments quickly reveal themselves as insufficient, as verging on the metaphorical, the artistic, something he doesn't seem to have direct enough access to, perhaps. After this, we get a respite from this tangle of confusing emotions and see that, quote, during this time, Krebs is doing things that he enjoys. He loved to play pool. He practiced on his clarinet, strolled to town, read, and we find that, quote, he was still a hero to his two young sisters. In answer to the devastating acknowledgement that he had lost everything, it's as if he's working here for a brief moment at least to identify certain small actions that still bring him comfort, that are helping make things, quote, good again. And we'll find something very much like this in A Big Two-Hearted River, where Nick works to heal his own PTSD, the next story I will address in this podcast. But amid this listing, an odd detail emerges, which ultimately launches Krebs into a long, agonizing attempt to ascertain what he feels about girls. He notes that, quote, Now, after the war, it was still the same car. In reference to his father's car. This is an odd truism. And by saying it, Krebs acknowledges the disorienting nature of the town, having remained so unchanged when he has changed so radically, a sensation that lies at the heart of his PTSD, the tools he used to survive the constant sickening fear of war have fundamentally changed him, but the world he left behind is fundamentally unchanged, and pinpointing this dynamic takes him still further into working to explicate his illness. He turns to the girls he often watches from the porch or sees in town, first noting that they live in a, quote, complicated world of already defined alliances and shifting feuds. Notice these exact words could easily describe the state of Europe before and during the war. Alliances, feuds, the things that had driven it to such a horrific place. The language of war permeates Krebs. Only mid-story do we find out his first name is Harold, but he refers to himself throughout only ever as Krebs, something a commanding officer or a fellow soldier might have called him, this new war-saturated identity he has assumed. And as he begins to address his feelings about the young girls who have now grown up, we find the exact repetition of a device we saw in Cat in the Rain and up in Michigan, the repetition and listening of things he quote-unquote likes. This occurrence of this pattern certainly works on its own, but clearly there's an invitation to consider it alongside the other two stories. And this is all at once quite similar and disturbingly different. When the American wife's list referred to the padrone's dignity and deadly serious way he took complaints, etc., and was grounded in her growing awareness that like one of the painters in the square, she had the ability to look at the world as an artist and express herself through her art more fully. And where Liz lists things about Jim's physical characteristics to try to pinpoint a powerfully evocative feeling welling up inside of her, 
also turning to close artistic observation as a means to gain clarity, Krebs's repetition of all the things he likes about the girls he watches doesn't provide anything positive nor any real clarity. He notes that it was a pattern several times, another odd observation, perhaps driven by how a soldier must look at things to survive a battle. Then he lists the things he likes, looking at them from a distance, their bobbed hair, their round Dutch collars above their sweaters, their silk stockings, their flat shoes, the way they walk. But he immediately follows it up with the things he did not like and did not want. He did not like them when he saw them in the Greek's ice cream parlor, in close proximity where he might have to talk to them. He, quote, did not want them themselves really, is a particularly agonized observation. And again and again, none of it fully says what Krebs is attempting to unearth. He doesn't want to have to spend a long time, quote, getting her. He did not want the, quote, intrigue in the politics, the, quote, courting. And he finally lands on not wanting to, quote, tell any more lies. But even as Krebs lands on another kind of conclusion, quote, it wasn't worth it. The next paragraph starts it all over again. He digs in, goes deeper still. He moves now from not wanting a girl to not wanting any, quote, consequences. To, quote, he did not want any consequences ever again. To, quote, he wanted to live along without consequences which again seems like a conclusion or a progression of conclusions, moving from the girls to his life in general, to his desperate need for something far simpler than war, which was filled with consequences. The loss, the fear, the steady annulment of his humanity through the sickening fear, the inversion of morality, being commanded to kill other human beings. But then he returns to the girls. There's unfinished business he feels the need to explore, to try to figure it out. He recalls that the army has, quote, taught him that he did not really need a girl. And the pose soldiers took of needing one, noting this, quote, wasn't true. And it was, quote, a funny thing that soldiers boasted both about needing girls and about not ever thinking about them, quote, that they could not touch him, that he could go to sleep without them. Here, he's on the cusp of a kind of breakthrough, of seeing that the war has taught him, a.k.a. reprogrammed him, to become distant, to not risk emotional connection in a time when so many were being killed and lost. His quote, that was all a lie, suggests that he realizes the posing soldiers was an emotional coping mechanism. And he comes to another seeming conclusion with, quote, it was all a lie both ways, which echoes his other more emphatic conclusive statements, quote, were lost themselves, and in this way he lost everything. But then he returns again to thinking about the girls, working to refine still further his he did not really need a girl, with, quote, you did not need a girl unless you thought about them, Another thing he, quote, learned in the army. And here he goes all in, embracing the army view of women and of sexual connections, recalling that, quote, when you were really ripe for a girl, you always got one. You didn't have to think about it. Sooner or later, it would come. Followed by a final, he had learned that in the army. Yet another pseudo-conclusion. I find these rationalizations particularly troubling. The army has taught Krebs that getting a woman is transactional, animalistic even, those words ripe for, underscoring that the emotion 
is purely animal, purely sexual. But as he goes on, returning yet again to the girls, yet again trying to contend with emotions he can't control nor comprehend, he may well be starting to sense that the things the army has taught him are a central part of the problem. In the final two paragraphs here, where he agonizes about his feelings towards the girls, he notes, quote, the French and German girls were there was not all the talking. It was simple, and you were friends, suggesting that the women he was with in war were likely prostitutes, or at the very least, others desperate to use sexuality as a kind of comfort from the constant fear. In Inner Chapter 7, which immediately precedes this story, Nick Adams lies, quote, very flat and sweated and prayed, while bombs are, quote, knocking the trench to pieces. It's a kind of snapshot of Krebs's sickening fear. And after his steady imploring prayer to Jesus and promises that if he lives, quote, I'll tell everyone in the world that you are the only one who matters, the next night, quote, he did not tell the girl he went upstairs with at the Villa Rosa, likely a house of ill repute, about Jesus, and he never told anybody. This could easily have been Krebs too, and this gives us a clearer look at what the war had taught him, really. It also serves as a kind of explanation of his inability to pray with his mother later, or even tell her that he loves her in those coming scenes. An observation squeezed in between Krebs's tortured attempt to express his feelings about women comes in that final paragraph, quote, but the world they were in was not the world he was in. This is quite a profound breakthrough, I think. Here, Krebs acknowledging that he has changed so much fundamentally that he's not even in the same world as these girls, that to engage in their chit-chat and stock language exchanges, like the lies he's required to tell, are no longer bearable. I see here a kind of silver lining. If only Krebs were able to take his experience a step further. Here and in the ending scene with his mother, Krebs is painfully aware of what the philosopher Martin Heidegger referred to as, quote, average everydayness, and how it steers us away from what he called authenticity or truth as uncovering. Heidegger and other existential philosophers write regularly of the poses we strike as human beings and how these keep us from understanding fundamental truths about being and about ourselves. Another existential philosopher, Carl Jaspers, writes about, quote, ultimate situations as being the things that open our eyes to deeper truths. Surely Krebs has experienced an extended ultimate situation, and clearly he can't bear the average everydayness required of him now in civilian life, even as he yearns for simple things that will allow his life to start, quote, going good again, to fully escape his war self where human bonds were too dangerous to make given that death came upon you so often and the fear of dying yourself constantly rattled you to your core. apologize for lingering so long in the opening passages of this story, and there's a lot more I would like to address here. Considerable time could be spent explicating the repetitions and chiasmuses throughout these opening paragraphs that deal with Krebs's attempt to understand his feelings about the girls who stroll past him. Suffice it to say that reading these paragraphs slowly 
even out loud, reveal Krebs's desperate desire to give voice to the contradictory sensations that have left him paralyzed, only finding some comfort by reading books about the battles he was actually a part of, seeing the devastating emotional experience replaced with confirmable factual accounts. Finally, the story settles into an action-driven, immediate narrative. But all of the events are now witnessed with the disturbing awareness of Krebs's emotional fragility. So when we hear the mother attempting to help him feel better by promising the car, by telling him that his father has agreed, we more fully grasp that this will do little to soothe him or restore him to what he was before the war. His problems run far, far deeper than this. In these first exchanges with his mother, it also becomes immediately clear that to him, he is Krebs, while to her he is Harold. He is someone fundamentally different, with a whole new identity than the boy who left to go to war. Fittingly, Krebs slash Harold is given a third name, Hare, by his, quote, best sister, Helen, and her role in the story is perhaps most critical in understanding what he is going through and what might ultimately heal him. Earlier, he has noted that to his sisters he is still a hero, and now we get to see that dynamic play out, but we also find a lot more going on and strong echoes of other stories in the collection as well. The first that comes to mind is the battler and adds his wife, who looked enough like him to be his sister. This echo is especially notable when Helen starts asking Krebs if he can be her beau, even though he's her brother. Helen's naivete here, her childish confusion that the love for one's brother can be the same as romantic love of a boyfriend or husband, serves a range of functions. It takes us back to the battler, reminding us of the theme of Jungian completion, the balance of anima and animus required for a healthy psychological condition. And remember, that story too shows us a world of male-on-male -male violence in a dark, nightmarish place, the swamp. Hemingway isolating out the dynamics at play on a much larger scale in wartime, Krebs has inhabited that dark, nightmarish swamp of sickening fear, and it was a place with men severed from their anima, of violence and fear, and that deep longing for completion replaced with mere animalistic transactional sex. My students are often uncomfortable with Helen's questions, thinking it odd or incestuous for Helen to feel this way, but I think they have no sense of what it was to be young and naive in a world before the television and internet. And Helen's naivete and her deep love for Krebs, which she mistakes for romantic love, provide Krebs with something essential. She asks nothing of him, no lies, no atrocity stories, no idle chit-chat, no average everydayness or inauthenticity. She only loves him fully and powerfully, so powerfully that she even mistakes or would like to have that emotion be something like romantic love. And where he can't tell his mother he loves her, he can respond in the positive to Helen. Do you love me? Uh-huh. Will you always love me? Sure. Granted, he can't say yes, but Helen is reminding him of something good, something real, something authentic. She continues, will you come over and watch me play indoor? And he responds, maybe. 
which leads to her admonishing him. Ah, Hare, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd want to come over and watch me play indoor. Here, her innocent pleading is suggestive of a powerful truth that he responds to in the final line of the story when he does go to see her play. Real, authentic, deep love, not its replacement or facsimile that emerges in wartime out of the necessity to remain distant and disconnected, coupled with the urge for simple, animal connection is generous and collaborative and unselfish and not necessarily all that complicated. To love his sister entails just going to watch her play sports, just being there for her. That's all. Helen is not asking a lot of him, unlike his mother, who wants him to take the car, go out with girls, get a job, get his life on track, be like the other boys who found a way to be more productive, etc., etc. This exchange with Helen echoes the end of something in Indian camp in striking ways. Helen's questions about whether she can be his beau, and Krebs's, I don't know, followed by her, sure you know, are reminiscent of Nick and Marjorie's breakup, where Nick first says, I don't know, Marge, then later responds to her loaded question, isn't love any fun, with his, no. Helen's, sure you know, seems in a sense built into Marjorie's trick question, which forces Nick to admit that he loves her, that he's afraid to love her deeply. Krebs, too, is afraid of deep love in this story, but for much more tragic reasons. Another connection with this story is Helen being delighted that Hare has taught her how to pitch, reminiscent of Nick's quote, I've taught you everything, you know everything, you know you do. But notice that Helen is proud that her brother has taught her things, perhaps in much the same way that Marjorie enjoys having learned so much from Nick, which comes through in those lines I find so compelling. She loved to fish. She loved to fish with Nick. Helen's love for her brother, while not romantic, bears a striking resemblance to Marjorie's love for Nick and the love for Marjorie that Nick flees from because it runs too deep. These questions and answers, and then Krebs' inability to answer his maybe, are also reminiscent of the doctor in Indian camp struggling to answer Nick's hard questions, especially his I don't know, in answer to Nick's, why did he kill himself? And here again is a naive child asking probing questions that reveal something essential about the adult answering the questions, even as they push the story into a more poignant place. Helen's inability to fully understand the nature of romantic love also echoes Krebs's own struggle to understand what he likes and doesn't like, what he wants and doesn't want, and how relationships with girls have ultimately been utterly upended by what the army has taught him. In a sense, his confusions about romantic love are mirrored in Helen's confusion. Even as her deep and pure love for her older brother could well be helping him realize that these kinds of human experiences are perhaps the only answer to how the war has changed him into someone who is no longer even a part of the same world others inhabit. Helen's name for him, Hare, could finally serve as a basis for Krebs forging a new self, neither Harold nor Krebs. Immediately on the heels of this positive moment of real potential healing grounded in authentic love, Hemingway shows us a very different, forced, and unhelpful response to Krebs' illness. 
his mother first insisting that he must not muss the paper, must feel particularly petty to Krebs, who has lived in the mess of the trenches of World War I, sickeningly afraid all the time. She urges him to find work, quoting a Bible cliché, there can be no idle hands in his kingdom, to which Krebs gives voice to his earlier epiphany that he was not in the same world as all the girls with, quote, I'm not in his kingdom. His mother's repeated, I knows, quote, I know the temptations, I know how weak men are, I know what your dear grandfather told us about the Civil War, must feel like daggers to him, since she decidedly does not know, has no idea of the magnitude of his emotional turmoil we had glimpsed in the opening pages of the story. And his only response is to look at the bacon fat hardening on his plate, an image that could well speak to the way he himself has changed, has hardened into something fundamentally different. Her insistence that he needs, like Charlie Simmons, quote, who is just your age, to have more ambition, to be, quote, determined to get somewhere and be a credit to the community, the community, remember, that craves stories of war atrocities, must all ring so hollow and empty to someone struggling just to feel human again, to feel again, to be capable even of finding a way to contend with his sexual urges. And on that note, there is more to be said about the space he shares with Liz from up in Michigan, who's also confused about the nature of an intersection of sexual passion and romantic love. By the time his mother gets to her more forceful still speech, that his father wants him to make a start at something, and that he wants Krebs to stop in and see him at the office. Krebs must be feeling particularly overwhelmed by all these mundane consequences of ordinary civilian life. It must all feel so trite to him. The last thing he needs right now is just to jump forth into the midst of the world, the world he was removed from for so long that he became someone else altogether. He needs to heal, to regain his footing, to talk about the things no one wants to listen to. The ultimate situation he has faced lays bare the inanity of everyday life with its trite cliches about getting somewhere and being a credit to the community and not having idle hands. Krebs's Is That All? is particularly telling, as if he's and the collection as a whole are saying, yes, I'm painfully aware of all the expectations of the normative civilian world, but I've lived for years on the cusp of existential nothingness, face to face with the mystery Nick Adams glimpsed in Indian camp, and while it gave him a sense of immortality, it served to make me agonizingly, constantly, sickeningly aware of my own human frailty, and left me with only a few carnal joys to use as temporary band-aids. When he responds no to his mother's don't you love your mother, dear boy, and after seeing her tears, following it up with I don't love anybody, the real conclusion to all those speculations in the opening pages here may well be more fully and adequately expressed. Here, too, we get to see an example of the things he tried to explain in the abstract in the early pages. The war has taught him not to love not to love anybody, not even his dear mother. It has taken that from him. That is an actuality. But to say it only causes her pain, sadness, because she can't understand the deeper thing that he's really saying, 
so he has to lie now to say he didn't mean it. And he implores her to please, please, mother, please believe me, which echoes exactly the words of Nick lying on his stomach, the trench being blown to bits all around him, imploring Jesus to please, please save him. But just like Nick's promise to spread the word, Krebs's urgent pleading is grounded in a lie, in something false, something he can't bring himself to fully express. But even though Krebs instantly insists he didn't mean it, and, quote, I didn't mean I didn't love you, he still can't state it in the affirmative, just as he can't kneel and pray with her, even though Nick prayed frantically for his own survival. The war has likely taught Krebs something here as well, that God doesn't answer prayer, that experiencing the utter hell of war, especially the First World War, makes it impossible to believe in a benevolent, interventionist God. The story comes to an end on a concurrently sad and somewhat hopeful note. Krebs sees that he can't keep his life from being complicated and also claims that, quote, still, none of it had touched him. He has become hardened to emotional intensity. The war has taught him how to become hardened to it, much like the doctor in Indian camp who had to proclaim that the pregnant woman's screams weren't important in order to get on with the surgery. I don't hear them because they're not important, he said. Krebs must have made an infinite number of such rational, interior proclamations in order to get through what he needed to get through. So even now, when faced with a complication, a moment of emotional upheaval, it, quote, doesn't touch him. We see in the final paragraph a continuation of the internal monologue we saw at play throughout the first few pages, the steady chatter of things he tells himself in order to get through it the listings and strange rationalizations. He would not go down to his father's office. He would miss that one. He wanted his life to go smoothly. Finally, he lands on, he would go over to the schoolyard and watch Helen play indoor baseball. He senses this will give him something essential, something that may well initiate his recovery. This last line is a lot like the woman in Cat in the Rain's proclamation, quote, I'm going down and get that kitty. Go over and watch, going down and get. The structures are the same. So perhaps Krebs has come to a point where he will more truly start to reach toward anima-based things that will allow him to feel again, to be touched by again, to re-enter the world whole and emotionally intact. Soldier's Home may well be one of Hemingway's most personal stories, a powerful attempt to express the unbearable psychic weight so many soldiers face when returning from the horrors of warfare. The title may well describe what Krebs's, what Hemingway's, and any soldier's actual home tragically become after living through the nightmarish swamp of violence and loss and despair of war. And Helen's deep and simple and pure love for her brother remind us too of the tremendous human capacity for good that stands in stark contrast to and serves as an antidote for this evil and madness.
Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Soldier's Home. For my next episode, or probably for my next two episodes, I'm going to take a look at the long two-part story of Big Two-Hearted River that ends the collection in our time. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a small monetary contribution to help me continue to put the time and energy into this podcast. Thanks so much. If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my Substack, JourneyCasts. There I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com. That's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I at substack.com. I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution. You can go to buymeacoffee.com and find me there and make a one-time contribution. The address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Arnie Sabat 7. I'm not sure why it's that, but it's A R N I E S A B A T 7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one time contribution. Thanks again. Take care. <laughs>